ending a meditation is a tragedy in a certain way. <laughs> to be rudely awakened from your awakening. But it's a comedy because we're always already awakened, even in our sleep. But it is true that it's sometimes very hard to tell a comedy from a tragedy. In fact, I know a guy who is a, uh, he, he actually runs a, a small ashram somewhere in Central America. <laughs> it's a, a very small, very poor, nobody comes because, you know, people don't get it in Central America. What's an ashram? They never heard of such a thing. So, you know, nobody gives donations, nobody comes uh, to uh, achieve enlightenment, people don't understand the concept. So. Anyway, he didn't care about that because he was in bliss, frankly, you know. So, one day he's sitting uh, with a few of his disciples and uh, he's meditating in a beautiful, blissful way. And suddenly a light, not these kind of lights, but a light, uh, brighter than a thousand suns, is in the middle of the space. And, uh, and he's, uh, he's shocked, really, to see this light out there. It's usually in there, you know. So, and the light says, uh, because of your faithfulness, I will give you one, of, whichever you wish, infinite beauty, infinite wealth, or infinite wisdom. He said, well, of course, infinite wisdom, please. <laughs> and then there's a bolt of lightning, and the voice says, done, and the light disappears. Ah, he's sitting there in his wise samadhi. Not saying a word. Finally, one of his disciples says, "Nu, what did you learn? Tell me the wisdom. Ah, I should have taken the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story, unfortunately. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to serious matters. No, actually, I used to make a lot of money. Believe it or not, I was a lawyer in California. I did very well. And um, it's a long story how I got here from there, but... Uh, actually, I, I had a good time. I was a part of this law firm, and I would go to parties, you know, with judges, politicians. Uh, there was always uh, some kind of political manipulations going on, and, you know. <laughs> this was a nice game to be playing. But one day, I, I was called in. I had to go to a funeral. One of the big shot the lawyers died, and, uh, you know, in California, they have special lawyer cemeteries. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I, I didn't know that at the time, and I went there, and, it, and, and I saw there was cranes uh, that was, were lowering the coffin in. It turns out that they dig the, at this cemetery, the, the lawyers are buried 24 feet deep in the earth. I, said, I never heard of such a thing before. I went to the priest, and he said, well, you know, deep down, they're really good people. <laughs> So I realize I have to leave this career, you know, I don't want to end up down there, so. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know why people are laughing, you see, this is why I never tell my story, because people don't realize how serious the whole thing is. Anyway, um, 
I, I, did, I did change my work. I became a counselor. But I found that I, uh, I had a very hard time doing grief counseling because I didn't know what to say to people who were, you know, uh, feeling some bereavement, uh, loss of a loved one. And I remember one time I had become a minister by this time and given up the law profession. And one of the young women who would come and meditate with me, she was crying. And after the uh, satsang, she came up to me and she said, uh, my father died last night. He passed away. And I said, uh-oh, uh, I didn't know what to say, frankly. I said, that's terrible. Uh, did he make any last requests? And she said, well, as a matter of fact, he did. He said, Mary, please put down that gun. <laughs> I said, Mary, <laughs> I didn't know what to say to Mary, frankly. <laughs> I said, I got to get out of this business. I don't know how to counsel people who are bereaved. So later on, I thought, okay, well, at least I can give some kind of advice. But, but I found I am incapable of giving advice of any kind that is useful to anyone. I remember I, there were days when I would go to San Jose, and uh, once I saw two beggars. They were about 10 feet apart on the ground. One of them was holding up a Star of David, and he had a little hat in front of it. I think it was a little kippah or something. Nobody was dropping money in it. About 10 feet away, somebody was holding up a crucifix, and people were putting lots of money in it. And I went to the guy with the Star of David, and I said, don't you know, this is a Catholic country. You're, you're not going to get any money this way. Uh, they're all going to go and put the money into this other guy's hat, you know? And the, the guy turns to the, uh, to the other beggar and he says, Moisha, he's trying to tell us how to run our business. <laughs> I don't know why you people are laughing. This is a very serious thing. I found I couldn't be a counselor for anybody. So I ended up going to India. I said, I'm going to renounce everything. I really I felt like I was uh, drawn to renunciation. And uh, I, I get to my first guru in Bombay. And in the satsang, he's chain-smoking cigarettes. I said, this is renunciation? You know? So I asked him, and he said, you know, things don't look uh, on the surface like what they really are. And he said, I hate these cigarettes. I used to smoke cigars, and I've renounced them. Every time I take a puff, I'm declaring my renunciation. He said, that's why I call myself no cigaridada. <laughs> so uh, I said, OK. Uh, he gave me the name no cigarananda. You know? I thought it was because of the bliss of not having to, s to smell any cigar smoke in his satsangs. But no, he said, I gave you that name because you're very close to enlightenment. Close, but no cigar. <laughs> so, you see, and, and I obviously couldn't make it as a comedian. I'll tell you the truth, I looked up some, uh, some figures. It turns out that uh, comedians have a higher suicide rate than almost any other profession. You know? and, uh, and I said, okay, well, I, I'm already in a bad enough way, I'm not going to take a chance you know, on being a comedian. Uh, it's gotten so bad now that when a, a famous comedian dies, you go on the internet and they, they're always asking one of two questions. Uh, was he a drug addict or did he happen to have any dealings with Hillary Clinton? 
You know, it's one of the two. This is the only, the only way out for a comedian. So I said, I don't want to make, you know, go either way. So I said, okay, I'm going to go straight. And uh, <clears throat> what I ended up doing was, uh, was simply going into silence because it, you can't really go wrong if you don't try to tell a joke. And I could see why it's very depressing to be a comedian because nine out of ten of your jokes are going to fail. Nobody's going to laugh at them. And so this will feed on your depression to, to get you to the point where you say, oh, okay, this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, inadequate uh, in, in my ability to make people laugh. So when I recognized that the whole reason for people to become comedians was the feeling of inadequacy, then I realized, okay, this goes to the very core of the issue with the human ego. All right? Because every human ego feels inadequate. And that's why they like comedy. Because they enjoy going to a comic and not laughing. Because <laughs> then he's the one who's inadequate, you see? And so uh, it, I realized that the, you know, the whole thing is a very sadomasochistic profession. You're laughing, you see? <laughs> so, but, but I'm trying to tell you the truth. This is very serious. You think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be funny, but I'm actually not. Uh, so anyway, I found this book called The Laughing Jesus. I, I like this guy. His name is Timothy Freak. You know, with a name like that, you, <laughs> you're going to become a heretic, let's face it. But he has a quote here about, uh, from Hafiz, in a book about Jesus. Of course, he's going to quote a, an Islamic you know, poet. But I think this is a very good, this is not a joke. This is a, a serious Hafiz poem. And, uh, and Hafiz is, uh, is speaking to people who are suffering. He says, I understand your wounds that have not healed. They exist because God and love have yet to become real enough to allow you to forgive the dream. You see? You, you do, will not forgive all the suffering that you've had in this dream and refuse to recognize that you dreamed the whole thing up because God, as yourself, and your own ability to love with a totally open heart, which would heal all of your wounds, are not yet a real enough part of who you are. You haven't, you haven't come to that recognition that this is a mirage that expresses your internal conflicts that seem to be interpersonal ones or problems in the external world, but they are all always problems of your own hearts internal conflict with itself. Okay, so see, you stop laughing. I, I can at least be serious sometimes. All right, I want to go back to the Tai Chi philosophy that I gave in some other seminar. I don't remember when. But uh, remember that the first stage is the Wuji. Where, and, and this is really not depicted accurately because obviously the circle doesn't have a circumference. Right? This is the same as Thomas Aquinas would have depicted as God, a circle or a sphere whose center is everywhere and the circumference nowhere. So picture an infinite sphere of pure awareness, pure space. This is our true nature, okay? Now, that true nature, once it comes into the mirage of the dream, 
it begins to, uh, to grow, to develop in accord with the logic and the mathematics of natural law. And so then they depict uh, uh, this as the, the famous uh, uh, Fibonacci uh, uh, number series, the, the outward spiraling. Because, you know, everything in nature has a spiral shape, whether it's a galaxy or a sunflower or whatever. You can look at those spiral shapes through a microscope or a telescope or whatever, but you will see it is fractally reiterated at every level. And it is this logic of development that is the basis of the natural world. But really it's the, the, the spiraling out of our imagination, of our creative intelligence into ever new dimensions. And so this is the mind of God that then gets expressed. This gets expressed as this. But then there's this third phase. And, uh, and, and this is the phase that consciousness goes in when it's in the uterus of the mother. Uh, and this is the one they left out. And, and what it is, I can't draw it on here very well, but it's a Mobius strip. Does everybody know what a Mobius strip is? Uh, it's like a, a circle, but it has been turned uh, uh, one, uh, one degree, one, one turn, and connected so that it seems to have two sides, but it actually has only one side. So that if you, if you go uh, long enough, you end up going on both sides because there, it looks like there's two because the paper has two, but really there's only one, right? So this is the paradox. This is where both comedy and tragedy come in. But I'll come back to that. The, the Tai Chi people say that then there's this final phase of this, which is the yin-yang, and, and this is where the two separate and they start chasing each other around because uh, the one down here believes that it is the uh, media naranha of the one up there. But they can never get together. There's il n'y a par de rapport. They, they are always chasing each other, or each other's tails, usually, and, uh, and they never meet. Eventually they get exhausted, and then there's this last phase where, you know, you get uh, these two paisleys who uh, hate each other, and they're not going <laughs> to connect at all. And they no longer have anything in common. Uh, that's the, what we call Kali Yuga, see? So it, it, it's, it becomes a form of nihilism. They've lost touch with the Wuji sphere of infinite consciousness. There's no more attempt to try to find unity within duality, and now they're in a state of nihilism. So what we have to do is get to a state of meta-nihilism. And, and that's when we can laugh. So I never met a nihilism I couldn't laugh at, and I think it's the same for you. But here's the problem. It goes back to this particular phase. So here's what I want us to understand, the logic of this, because this turns out to be the logic of all suffering, all maya. Why? Because here's what happens. Consciousness enters into the uh, uterus of the mother. And uh, as the embryo begins to develop the brain, after three or four months, there's the quickening. Consciousness enters into the brain and starts functioning. And it's functioning within the body of the mother. It is not yet a separate body with the mother. It is, in a sense, a Mobius strip. They are one body. 
but they are one body with two consciousnesses. You understand? This is the paradox that the child's mind can never get over. Okay? Two consciousnesses, but one body. Now, once it, it is born, it sees it's in a separate body, and it identifies with that, but it also knows that the bodies were once one, and inherently there is still this unity that remains at the plane of, of psychology. And so the, uh, the, the child is always chasing after the mother to get back into that state of unity that has now been lost by the separation of these bodies. The minds do not separate. The mother's mind, the mother's consciousness, including all her psychopathologies, are internalized as one superego. And the ego and the superego are in conflict. They're in a love-hate relationship. Because the child is saying, why did you separate from me? And the mother often will feel that way too. Why did you leave me? Right? That, this is why women often have postpartum depression. And so there will be this spiraling out, but a constant returning back to try to re retrieve that lost oneness uh, with the mother at that point where the consciousnesses began to separate and to, to attempt to go back into the ideal state, which is the equivalent of the Wuji in which I and the mother are one. Right? Now, as the child grows, it knows it can't do this with its biological mother anymore, but it will project the superego image of the mother onto other people. Even, if, even male people, it doesn't matter. Male-female is irrelevant. Gender becomes irrelevant. It's, it's simply a, a question of your identification with the mother. And that mother can also be projected onto the father. So... And, and then it will be projected later on husbands, wives, uh, or, or dogs, or high heel shoes. It doesn't really matter. The point is, one will try to attain this kind of unification with an object that will become an impossibility. And this is the tragic form of life. But this is what leads to master-slave relationships, creditor-debtor relationships. And uh, all of those uh, relationships of duality in which there is some kind of a sadomasochistic uh, relation in which uh, one, one's basic attitude is uh, uh, torment me but don't leave me, right? That, that's the basic issue with nearly all psy psychopathology. Uh, because at least if you torment me, I know you love me. You know, if you torture me and punish me, then I know you need me, right? And so the masochist is in a place of feeling the superiority of the sadist's need to punish them in order to get rid of their own anger and underneath that the sorrow of their disconnection with the mother. So it is this kind of a Mobius strip relationship that we never get out of that, that keeps the reiteration of the, uh, of the suffering, the, the repetition compulsion, as Freud called it, that we can never get out of so long as we are stuck in that Mobius strip. And so our job is to strip it off and to be in the emptiness in which there is no identification either with the mother or with the child self, both of which now are simply images in your own mind. 
And those images are going through a scenario, a fantasy of love-hate that then gets projected out as real-time disastrous relationships with yourself, with your own body, because the body then becomes the mother that now torments you and with, with, as soon as you have physical symptoms or with another person or with whatever level of relationality you're involved in. And so until we get out of that duality that is an internal reference to a lost object mother that we needed at the point when we were simply uh, fetuses in the womb and the mother was the goddess, the, the power that en en encompassed us, completely surrounded us. So she was the universe, she was Wuji and we were inside of her. And therefore, there's a sense of owing everything to her. There's a sense of infinite debt to that one. And therefore, a disloyalty if one breaks out of the Mobius strip, or I sh maybe the Mombius strip is better. But if you break out of it, then you will feel a sense of not only guilt, but of abandonment and being lost in loneliness forever without that torment that, it, that feels like home. The torment is the, the, the default state of feeling like I and the mother are one. And so to let go of suffering is also therefore to let go of that which we yearn for the most, you see. And that's why every ego is masochistic. It wants to suffer the tragic anguish of the mother being so close and yet I can never reach her, okay? And, and it is that tragic comedy of the human condition that is produced by the egoic identification. And so it's only when we free ourselves from that that life again becomes blissful as it was meant to be. So this, it, it, the solution is very simple. But what it requires is a disidentification from not only the physical body and the mind that has a name that was probably given by the mother, or at least by the parents, and therefore feels like it owes its existence to them, but letting go of the internal fantasy productions of a, uh, a union that, that is never complete and is always just uh, beyond reach, like the carrot beyond the nose of the horse that it will never reach, that causes the ego's ongoing repetition of its suffering. And it can all be let go of instantly if you realize it's a fantasy. It has no reality. It's a mirage. You will never reach that object. You will never attain satisfaction in any relationship with anyone or anything in the world, only by return to that source that is beyond the world and yet which you are, it will there be peace and harmony and love and light that is not dependent on circumstances or on the other. And then you will be able to forgive the dream that you have dreamed as your reality. <laughs>